Take two. Take two. What's up, guys and gals? I'm John Lindeman. There is J.R. Parks. And this is episode 21. The podcast can finally drink. Uh, <laughs> episode 21 of What Makes Us Human. What's going on, J.R.? Maybe we should have made the Moonshine episode, episode 21. Messed up. We should have done that. Yeah. So today, uh, listener discretion is strongly advised. Uh, we're talking about a scary topic that is uh, very brutal. We're talking about the Velisca X murders. All right. So, if you're squeamish, um, and we're not gonna be, we're not gonna be nasty just to be nasty, but this is a very tough topic. So anyway. We're talking about the Velisca Axe murders that took place in 1912 in southeastern Iowa, Montgomery County. Okay. You ever seen Field of Dreams? I have. This is not Field of Dreams. Is Field, that where he Field says, of Nightmares? Field of Nightmares, man. Uh, says, is this Iowa or is this Iowa? He says, is this heaven? I just screwed that up. He looks at him and says, is this heaven? And he's like, no, it's Iowa. All right. And they just played, a, they just played the Field of Dreams ball game. They did. They? Did you and, watch that? Uh, I did not. We uh, we don't have any form of cable or, or any live streaming really currently. So uh, I wanted to watch it. I didn't have the opportunity. I heard it was quite a game. You know, it really came down to the end. It should have. Yeah, probably a tearjerker. You know, the whole one, hey dad want to have a catch. Yeah. All right. So anyway, imagine it's nineteen twelve. Okay. You're a farmer. You get a phone call maybe once a week if you have a phone. It's just the good old days, you know? Way back when, uh, if you had to go, you probably went to the outhouse. You ever had an outhouse? I, I mean, I've never personally owned an outhouse, no. Me neither. Uh-uh. My, uh, my great-grandparents, when, when my dad took... My mom, the year year they got married, 1985, took uh, his new wife to his grandparents for Thanksgiving dinner. They did not yet have running water. In 85? In 1985. They got it like the next year or something. But, uh, Holy yeah, that was, smokes. You know, that was the guy who was also the, the going back to the same family that, you know, he spent a year and a day in Atlanta Penitentiary for Moonshine, going back to last week's episode. But, uh, yeah, I have not personally ever owned a... Uh, Outhouse. Wow, could you imagine going to see Empire Strikes Back and coming home and being like, oh, we need more water. Let's go down to the creek. <laughs> you know? Golly. All right, so anyway, it's the night of June 9th, 1912. It's a nice Sunday evening, and the Moore family is going to the local Presbyterian church three blocks from their home in Villisca, Iowa. At the local Presbyterian church, they're having a, a, a little service, like a end-of-year Sunday school program. So Josiah, Joe Moore is what we're going to call him. He's 43, and his wife, Sarah Moore, she's 39. They take their children, Herman. Herman is 11. I think that's a funny name. I think of a whole, like, Herman Munster. You know, Herman's 11. Catherine is 10. Boyd, B-O-Y-D, is 7. And Paul is 5. So they have four kids. Okay. All right. Now, Catherine, their one daughter who's 10, 
she has friends that are going to spend the night, unfortunately, and very tragically spend the night um, after the church service. Lena and Ina Stillinger. Lena's 12 and Ina is 8. And so they take the six kids down to the Presbyterian Church for the Sunday school, end of year Sunday school program. And Sarah Moore is, uh, she's directs the kids evidently programs whatever so she's involved and uh, so they have this little program and then they have a get-together I guess we might call that fellowship okay afterwards where they eat and talk and you know everybody whatever um, by the time they get out of church it's after nine o'clock so the kids have been up late you know um, and the next morning is Monday morning they got to get up and do their chores so they, they take Herman, Catherine, Boyd, Paul, and then the two friends, Lena and Ina, back to the house. And by around 10.30, everybody's in bed, um, and the lights are out. Now, at some point after midnight, they think, a man, we're assuming it's a man, makes his way into the home, and he has grabbed something every family has in the outbuilding out in the farm. He's grabbed Joe Moore's axe. Okay. And he's in the house. Everybody's asleep. All the lights are out. So he gets an oil lamp. And if you've ever used an oil lamp, first time I ever used an oil lamp, I about burned the house down because I had too much wick. Mm-hmm. And it was like whoosh. You know what I mean? But like the end of the world. Uh, he trimmed the wick way down and just barely had it lit just enough light so he could see what he was doing and he takes the axe and flips it so that he's going to use the back side the dull side not the blade but the blunt okay it's not a pickaxe it's got a flat yeah back okay. yeah it's like a wood chopping axe single bladed and he goes upstairs and he raises the axe of course it's you got a picture as backwards mm-hmm Um, raises the axe and brings one stroke down heavily on Joe Moore's face and probably killing him instantly. Um, Sarah does not wake up, so she's next. He drops the axe on Sarah's face, probably killing her instantly. And he goes from room to room doing this. Um, By the time everybody has passed away... So this is really bad because there are six kids that he has to go kill. I believe it's Lena Stillinger. Um, It turns out that she has one defensive wound on an arm and blood on a a knee. Um, And so it appears that she awoke. Yeah. Which is really sad. Yeah. Um, But she's the only one that has any type of defensive wound. once everybody has passed away, he, he starts over and goes back to Joe um, and brings the axe down 20 to 30 times on each person's skull, to which it does a severe, catastrophic amount of damage. Sure. So it's so this unrecognizable, basically. Um, and it gets really peculiar after that. Uh, next, whoever this person is, he goes and cleans the axe, leans it against the wall in Ina and Lena Stillinger's room, leans the axe against the wall, 
goes and finds pieces of clothing out of everybody's bedroom and covers the faces, what's left of the faces, um, and wraps the heads in cloth. Uh, so that I guess so they can't see him, maybe, is what later people posited or thought. But he covers their faces. Hmm. Then okay. he covers all the glass, every mirror in the house he covers with cloth. Okay. It gets weirder. Then he prepares a plate of bacon, about two pounds of bacon, um, puts it on the table, Puts a bowl of water on the table and I guess washes his hands because when they, we'll get to this later, but when they get in the house and find the carnage, there's a, a bowl of uneaten food on the table and prepared but uneaten and a, a big bowl of bloody water on the table. Okay. He also found that some reports said two pounds, others said four pounds, but a huge slab of bacon... And it was found leaning against the wall next to the axe in Lena and Ina Stillinger's room. Also weird. Yeah. And that's it. So why do you think... What goes through your mind when you hear covering the mirrors and the glass? I mean, this whole thing seems to indicate somebody who's clearly not well which <laughs> right. probably goes without saying but deeply mentally ill the because the 20 to 30 strikes to the face would almost indicate rage but yet the events prior to that where he actually killed them would indicate more like premeditation and thought that went into it. Yep. So it, it's a weird. I mean, the whole thing is is obviously very strange. There's even, uh, I guess they're still there today because you can tour the house. There are even gouges in the ceilings where he raised the axe a little too high and the blade went into the ceiling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so it's a very calculated at first. I don't. I almost don't see how you could do this without waking somebody up. Yeah. It just. Yeah. It seems like the fact that Lena is the only one that awoke is that's weird to me. But it was pulled off. It happened. Yeah. You know. So that's okay. That's the crime. So now we have the mystery. You know. Now now there's a mystery to this thing. Well, who? Who on earth did this? How was it discovered? So now we fast forward to June 10th, 1912. 7.30 a.m. rolls around, and Mary Peckham, the neighbor to the west of the house, had been, I think she had noticed, you know, these people are farmers. Yeah. They get up, they get up with God in the morning, you know, I mean, before the sun. And she noticed that uh, while she was about doing her chores, she didn't see Joe and the kids. Yeah. Um, and she, that was odd. Well, by 7.30 in the morning, she knows, well, something's not right, that nobody has stirred an ounce at the Moore home. Um, so she goes over and feeds their chickens, lets their chickens out or something. I guess they had a chicken run. Um, lets them out. And she gets on the phone and calls Joe's brother, Ross, 
And Joe's brother Ross says, well, I'll come by. And, you know, So he comes over and enters the home. Well, then he quickly exits the home. Mm-hmm. He found two bodies in a bedroom, and I'm not sure who he found, but he found two bodies and some blood in a bedroom, and he noticed the heads covered in cloth. Um, and he runs out, and he telephones the hardware store where Joe works. And he gets in touch. I wrote the guy's name down. He gets in touch with an employee named Ed Selly and says, have you heard from Joe? And he says no. And so Ed calls the marshal, who has a great marshal name, Hank Horton. Okay. Hank Horton is now on the case. Hank arrives at 8.30 and finds everyone dead in their beds. Hank's got a tough job. Yeah. I, I mean, also, it's a, I, I think it's a little weird of the brother to to find that. Maybe it's a cultural thing. Maybe it's a, maybe it's a cultural difference. But I think it's very weird of the brother to find that. And his first call isn't to law enforcement. His first call is to his brother's place of employment and to say, hey, have you, you, know, have you heard from him? That just seems a little off. Yeah, I, I'm not. I'm not saying like necessarily it makes him suspicious or anything. It's it's just unusual behavior, I think. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, the marshal Hank Horton brings with him several people. Now it's 1912, so this crime scene is about to get stomped on. Oh yeah. By a circus, you know. Uh, so he brings Ellie Lindquist, who's the coroner. J. Clark Cooper, who's a doctor, great name, J. Clark Cooper, is a doctor. Uh, Wesley Ewing, the local church minister. F.S. Williams, the doctor who does examine the bodies, ends up examining the bodies. F.S. Williams. And it's F.S. Williams, after examining the bodies, that comes back outside. And, of course, the whole town is now in the front yard at the front porch. And there's people dying to get in and see what happened. And he announces, don't go in there, fellas, or you'll regret it till the end of your days. So it's the worst thing he's ever, ever seen. Yeah. Um, It said that the town drunk, while he was saying this, the town drunk had snuck into the house and managed to steal a section of Joe Moore's skull, hoping he could pawn it off on somebody and make some money. All right. Yeah. yeah. So this circus ensued in the house um, and the crime scene is totally jacked up uh, said that there were people in there taking pictures um, yeah so not good alright so the murder weapon is found in the Stillinger girls bedroom and uh, Hank Horton finds it leaning cleaned against the wall and he finds the slab of bacon he finds the uh, the food uneaten on the kitchen table in a bowl of bloody water. Um, it's of course noted that each victim's head is covered in cloth, and then how badly they they're pulverized. Uh, Lena Stillinger and her bloody knee and defensive wound on one of her arms are noted. Um, her skirt is lifted above the waist and she's exposed, but she is unmolested. Okay. Which is strange um, for crimes like this. 
All right. Now, who did this? This is where it gets really odd. Sure. Who, who, who and why? Yeah, who in the world would commit such a heinous crime? Um, and then why on earth? Like, there, well, there's not a reason, you know. But why in the world would somebody do something like this? Okay. The next day, so the bodies are found on June 10th. The next day is June 11th. Uh, at 5.19 in the morning, the Reverend Lynn George Jacqueline Kelly, that's right, he's got four names. He goes by George, but the, the Reverend Lynn George Jacqueline Kelly on Tuesday at 5.20 in the morning leaves Velisca on the westbound number five train. He gets out of Dodge. Okay. He got into Dodge that Sunday morning and went straight to the Sunday school events and the service that night and watched the girls perform and everything. All right? Okay. So he comes into town on Sunday and he leaves early out early on Tuesday morning. While he's leaving, he tells, I guess it's the guy he's buying the ticket from at the train station, somebody later reported that he looked at them and said... Um, some comment about the bodies being back there in Velisca. Okay. And he and there was some information that he uh, that he spoke about at the train station, but not, I don't know if anybody saw him at the crime scene. Yeah. That morning. Okay. He's a very small man. He's only 114 pounds. He's left-handed. Later, they looked at the blood spatter and determined that. I don't know how you could term this, but they figured, even back then, that they thought, due to the blood spatter, that this person that did this was left-handed. Okay. I thought that was a little weird. All right. I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I could see it. Okay. He shows up just for the church services and then leaves the next day. Um, he has this weird quote at the train station. Two weeks later, now I'm gonna hit, I'm gonna hit you with a bomb here in a minute. Two weeks later, he returns to town. So a fortnight later, he's back in town on a train, posing as a detective with other law enforcement folks touring the home. All right, <laughs> it gets better. Guess how he makes his living? He's a Methodist pastor. Okay. That travels around. That's the he's been to uh, Missouri, Kansas. He travels around on the trains and and fills in preaching for local Methodist churches. Okay. So now, this guy's looking weird. I mean, that profession certainly would not have been odd in the time. Oh, yeah, right, 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 right. But, but his behavior... Oh, yeah. Posing as a detective... Oh, definitely. I'm going to hit you with another bomb. Um, I think our producer, Hannah, thinks he's guilty. <laughs> By the look on her face. All right, as a youth, Lynn George Jacqueline Kelly had a major mental breakdown um, and was hospitalized in a mental institution for a little while. Uh, after he got out, he became a minister, but he had odd behavior. The people quote, odd behavior. He posted an ad in a newspaper while he was a pastor now. <laughs> He posted an ad in a local paper in one of these states in 1910 
where he needed I can't read my writing he posted an ad in a local paper where he needed a stenographer I couldn't make out my cursive alright and this woman responded to the ad and said I can do that how much you pay and whatnot. well he, he corresponded with her through letter and he sent her a letter reminding her that uh, while she stenographed, if that's a word for him, she would be a stenographer who performed in the nude. All right. Right. So this guy is very odd. odd. Yeah. <laughs> this guy is weird, man. Um, so he's got quite a past. Now, he's the only person that goes to trial for these murders. Okay. He's tried twice. 11 to 1, he gets off the first time. And 12 to nothing, he's exonerated the second time. The big thing with him is he's so tiny. Okay. He's a tiny fella. So the defense's argument was essentially he couldn't have done this. Physically, he couldn't have done this. Yep. He's very, very short. And he only weighs like 114 pounds soaking wet. Okay. But he's assaulting. It's not like he's taking on Brock Lesnar in the UFC. He's assaulting people that are asleep. Sure. And they don't. They can't fight back. Sure. Right. I guess maybe one of the things that might factor into his height would be the height of the ceilings and the length of the axe handle. Right. Because you said there were notches in the ceiling where when he came up, you know, he caught the ceiling. And yep. If he's real short, he might not have been able to do that if the right. ceiling's if the ceiling's tall enough. And I bet that came into play. All right, so there's our there's a big suspect. Now it doesn't make you guilty that you're odd. Sure. Right. But obviously this guy has some mental issues. Yeah. So he is our right now, you know, he's the one that goes to court, blah blah blah. However, everybody in town is eyeballing another guy. Okay. But you know, so immediately one of the very first people that comes to mind for those in the area of Villisca is State Senator <laughs> Frank F. Jones, who goes by F.F. Jones. Okay. And in their minds, this is suspect number one. Joe Moore worked for him from 1900 to 1907, and he worked him like a dog. F.F. Uh, F. Jones worked Joe Moore around the clock seven days a week to the point where he eventually quit. And I'm not sure what the business was, but when Joe Moore quit, uh, he set up a rival business, and he took the biggest customer with him, which happened to be John Deere. Okay. So he really put a hurting on FF Jones. And sure. So Jones was probably infuriated. probably hard, the hardware store business you referenced earlier. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So I do know. Yeah. Okay. So when he moved, he took that with him, and he took huge business with him. And FF Jones is very upset. Um, now Joe Moore. Also, just because you're a victim doesn't mean you're squeaky clean, <laughs> right? Sure. All right. So Joe Moore had an affair. With F.F. Jones' daughter-in-law. Okay. Who evidently had lots of affairs. We know this because she liked to sleep around, but she didn't have the biggest brain in between her two precious ears. And oftentimes she forgot about 
You ever watch Mayberry? You know, uh, Andy Griffith? A little. And he's like, Sarah, get me the diner. Well, she forgot about Sarah a lot. The switchboard operator. Mm, okay. So the switchboard operator, if she ever, if the Holy Spirit ever got a hold of her in revival, she's going to start naming names, you know, at the local Presbyterian church. So the switchboard operator was very familiar with all of her male companions because she's making these phone calls and setting stuff up. Um, Jones, F.F. Jones, was 57 years old, and he was filthy rich. He's a state senator, and uh, people were convinced that he had hired a killer to take out this family. Hmm, okay. And that killer is William Blackie Mansfield. He went by Blackie. William Blackie Mansfield. Okay. However, Mansfield, at the time of the murders, was in Illinois. He wasn't even in the state. And he had tons of tons of proof of it. I'm not sure what he was doing, but it was, it was an instant, well, there's no way he hired Mansfield to pull this off because he didn't do it. He was out of, out of state. Okay. However, years later... Mansfield attacked his own family with an axe. <laughs> so he wasn't squeaky clean. Was it the same way? The back of the axe and the whole? That I don't know. Okay. But he did attack. Uh, he, he committed a crime with an axe that involved a murder. Um, needless to say, F.F. Jones was not reelected the next election year. <laughs> okay. I don't know if needless to say, because any more. They might be able to pull that off and still get reelected, but nowadays you never know. Yep. All right. Now the modern idea of what has happened is that this is more than likely a serial killer. Okay. That's pulling this off. Um, the reason is in the time period from the, the two years, 1911 to 1912, there are a lot of Midwest American axe murders. Um, Colorado Springs, Colorado. I think that sets it off. I think that's in October of 1911. Uh, Monmouth, Illinois. Okay. Uh, Ellsworth, Kansas. Paola or Paola. I would say Paola, Kansas. And then uh, Villisca, Iowa. Now, what's weird about this is they don't all have the same traits, but the majority of them together have the... So in four out of those five, there's found an oil lamp in the house with the, the wick trimmed way down to mm-hmm. where if you light it, you're just barely going to be able to see. Um, four of them ha- involve an axe, and one involves a lead pipe, which was available. Okay. Uh, ooh, that's bad, man. Um, and in one of them, the family has one of those old box phones on the wall that has the two bells and yeah. then and it, which looks kind of like a face you know uh, okay and it's covered up with a cloth hmm it's just so weird interesting um, yeah it is interesting uh in monmouth illinois you have a female victim who basically exactly resembles uh the stillinger girl that had a defensive wound this girl also had the, the dress pulled up, exposing her, but she was unmolested, which is, it, I mean, that looks almost signature 
for some sort of serial killer. Um, now get this. In the Paola, or Paola, I don't know how to say it. I guess Paola, Kansas one. The family is actually up very late at night. And I, I don't know if they had dark curtains or what. But so they, they were up. So they had light. But the killer did not see the light from outside. He assumed everyone was asleep. They heard glass break. Looked down the hall. And there is a man holding a barely lit oil lamp Mm -hmm. and he sees them drops the lamp and ducks out the window oh my gosh so the fact that they're still up keeps them all alive yeah yeah um and every one of these towns was a train town sure so it looks like you've got a fella for about a year and a half hopping the midwest um doing this killing people yeah and it looks like you're about maybe 18 months, and it happens five or six times um, over that period. So some people believed that there was a fella named Henry Lee Moore. Um, he was in Columbia, Missouri, and one of the last murders uh, was there. He killed his mother, Mary Wilson, because he said he wanted the family home for himself. But the problem with this, and he did it with an axe, but the problem is, why would normally the first people you kill is your family? Yeah. Not the last. Yeah. So that doesn't really um, sound, that almost to me seems copycat. Sure. Yeah. What are your thoughts? I mean, it, it makes sense that at the time and and given sort of how localized news and events and everything would have been it it would make sense that you could have you know five of these across the country and the people in the town that it happens in next aren't familiar with the previous events so they they wouldn't connect them right yeah um, you prop 1912 I'm not even sure if, that you had the FBI yet, so you probably didn't really have a federal in, investi- investigation right, team right. that could have you know, feasibly noticed a pattern and put stuff together either. So you're poor. Uh, you know, you're, you're lower level. Now, all of our officers, are, we're, we're thankful for them. I don't mean that. But your guy that's way down the ladder in the authority scale, whatever you want to put it, uh, you know, been a, a deputy for six months at the local podunk sheriff's department. Okay. He's not going to have any clue about everything I just read more than likely. I think that's what you're saying. Sure. Yeah. And I mean, you wouldn't walking, have had national, you wouldn't have had national news database and stuff. Yeah. Or even just news, even just, you know, whether you're talking newspapers or yeah. very localized, obviously you didn't have television. You would have had some radio but you wouldn't have had national news in the way we think of, even to connect it from that standpoint. And it looks like the FBI was created on July 26, 1908. So just prior to this, probably uh, probably would have still been very small and not very well funded and, and man. all of that. But uh, yeah, it's uh, definitely some mental illness with whoever um, was responsible. And we don't know to yeah. this day. We don't know. So that minister, to me, 
I mean, I don't care if he's 80 pounds soaking wet. I, I still lean towards him. That's just so creepy. He's creepy, but again, creepy doesn't mean guilty. It doesn't. It doesn't. You're so right. unless there's some kind of indication that he, that his area that he traveled in also encompassed these other right. towns, yeah, I don't know that. Uh, I don't know that that he would be responsible. But I think we're in agreement. This is probably one person train hopping. Yeah. Yeah. And now, serial killers, um, from what I have heard, I love to listen to true crime podcasts, and from what I'm hearing, uh, serial killers are now taking advantage of the fact that they know that we're inundated with news, Yeah. and when we hear a news story, unfortunately, about um, a drug-addicted person or a sex worker that's been brutally dismembered and left in a warehouse in Chicago... It's hard to get, unfortunately, it's hard to get the public after that person, hmm. you know? And so we're starting, evidently, they're beginning to see a lot of uh, that happening in our major cities where it seems that there is a signature on a killing, and but you can't get the public behind it. And basically, there are active serial killers in some of our major cities right now, and they're having trouble nailing it down, you know? Interesting. Yep. And I know, uh, I love to listen to the Murder Squad, and uh, here recently on the Murder Squad, they talked about uh, Rock Hill, South Carolina, um, and they're hoping that once this person makes it north up into Charlotte, he'll make a mistake, and Mecklenburg County will really press their thumb on this, and maybe they'll find this person. So that is definitely in our area. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, I always want to watch your six, man. You always want to be careful. You know, you don't want to be paranoid, but there's some there are some wolves out there amongst the sheep. I thought this was a good one. It's brutal and it's tough to talk about, but uh, unfortunately, one of the things that makes us human is uh, crime. I mean, you go all the way back to Cain and Abel. You know, you can go way back with this stuff. Um, and this was a this was the first podcast I ever listened to. It just happened to be on the Velisca Axe Murders, and I have been hooked ever since on podcasts. Um, and it was it was a really good one. So next week we'll have to do something about rainbows and unicorns, you know, <laughs> something lightweight. Yeah, I'll have to, I'll have to put some thought into next week. So, so. <laughs> Anything else? Woo! No, that's about it. Um, I do want to do a shout out to uh, Larry P. Uh, Larry moved down here from Maryland a couple years ago. I talked with him this week. Uh, he said he is uh, subscribed to the show, so I want to shout him out, and he started listening. So, Larry, what's up? Thanks for listening, man. Excellent, excellent. Well, folks, if you uh, enjoyed this, go ahead and leave us a review on whatever platform you are listening to this episode on. Go ahead and uh, reach out to us, WMUH Podcast on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We always love to hear from our listeners. You can also email us, wmuhpodcast at gmail.com. We good? We're good. All right, folks. We will see you next week. For 22.